Mikey's going to come up and preach the word for us. All right, good evening. If you would, please open up your copy of God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be concluding chapter 4 by looking at verses 11 through 16. Starting in verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for tonight and the great blessing that it is to gather again at the end of this Lord's Day to open up your word and to hear it read and to hear it preached. And God, I pray that as your word is read and as it's preached and taught, that your spirit would be at work to illumine the truth of the scriptures to our minds and to our hearts. God, that we would be convicted where conviction is needed, that we would be encouraged and edified where encouragement is needed and comfort. God, we pray that in all things you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted in our minds and in our hearts and that we, your people, would be edified and built up. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. Well, Thomas Watson, who's a Puritan and a writer that many of you might be familiar with. He's written a number of works that the Banner of Truth publishes, a number of Puritan paperbacks. Many of you probably have a number of copies of those. Uh, one of Thomas Watson's well-known Puritan paperbacks or books is called A Godly Man's Picture. And in Thomas Watson's book, A Godly Man's Picture, he lays out from the scriptures all of the different characteristics and qualities that make a Christian, that characterize and define a Christian. And as I was looking at this text this evening and thinking back to what Russell walked us through last week, I asked myself the question, what is the godly pastor's picture? What is the picture of a godly pastor? What is the picture of a true pastor? What is the picture of a biblical minister of the gospel? And this has ultimately been Paul's work over the course of this entire letter. And in particular, this section that Russ started for us last week and that we will finish up with this week, that Paul has been laying out for Timothy what the picture of a godly minister of the gospel what a picture of a, of a true pastor looks like. And what Paul has been laying out and what he's going to continue to lay out has great relevance, particularly for Timothy, as he's the 
primary audience, the, the immediate audience that Paul has in mind as he writes this letter. It also has relevance for all pastors and ministers of the gospel throughout all of church history and including today. And any aspiring or would-be pastors, there is great relevance for what Paul is expounding and exhorting Timothy here. There's also relevance for church members as we consider this text and as we consider the picture of a godly pastor. Because there's a correlation between the faithfulness of the pastor, the faithfulness of a gospel minister to the duties that he's been called to, to the life that he's been called to, there's a correlation and a relationship between this faithful pastor and for the church's edification. And the reverse is also true. There's a correlation when we see ungodly pastors, when we see unfaithful pastors, and how it affects greatly the congregation to which they serve. So again, I ask, what is the picture of a godly and true pastor? Specifically, what is the picture that Paul paints for us in these verses? That's what we're going to be looking to unpack throughout this text. So instead of normally just laying out for you really quickly and succinctly two to three alliterated points that define what that godly pastor is, we're going to walk through the text and draw out some of these characteristics that Paul gives to Timothy that ought to shape him, shape his life, and shape his approach to leading, exemplifying, and modeling for the church what a godly minister of the gospel is to look like and to act like. So again, looking at the text, 1 Timothy 4, looking just at verses 11, 12 for a moment, he says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. Well, this imperative, command and teach, connects us to all that's preceded. All that's preceded, not just in what we looked at last week, but what is preceded in the letter as a whole. What has Paul been doing for Timothy as he writes Timothy? Timothy is in the church in Ephesus. He's given charge and task to lead this church. And what has Paul been charging him with? Well, firstly, to establish church order. That's one thing that we've seen Paul emphasize, that one of Timothy's marching orders from the Apostle Paul is to establish church order in Ephesus. And the second thing is to teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. And the bulk of Russell's sermon last week was focused on the gospel minister's role in teaching sound doctrine and refuting false doctrine. So when he says command and teach these things, he's referring to everything that has preceded. But notice in verse 12, there's a dramatic shift. There's a dramatic shift in the tone. Command and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you. Let no one despise you. Dramatic shift from verse 11 to 12 with, with such a strong imperative in the negative. What is happening in Ephesus? And what reason would there be to despise Timothy. 
we're ultimately given the answer here. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Now, we don't know the precise age of Timothy at this point. You could read a number of different commentaries, a number of different scholars that give an age range of anywhere between 25 and 35. The point is not to pinpoint an age to which we classify someone as a youth. Even in our context, right, when we think of a youth or someone that is youthful, we have probably, what, anywhere between 12, 13 up until now 25, 26, right? That number just keeps getting higher and higher and higher for a number of cultural reasons that we don't have time to get into. But the point is not to establish what Timothy's age is. The point is, is that he is, whatever his age, still considered a young man. He's still considered a young man, and for some in Ephesus, he might be too young of a man. Too young, particularly, for the task that he's being charged with. And Paul, in his wisdom, by the grace of God, is either one anticipating this, he's anticipating the fact that there might be those in the congregation in Ephesus who are aware of this and may despise or look down on Timothy for his youthfulness, who who may not give the respect and honor that Timothy deserves in light of the calling that he's been given as a gospel minister. So Paul either is anticipating this or he knows specifically, he knows specifically of some within the Ephesian church who have been, who have been looking down upon Timothy specifically for his youth. But whatever the case is, Paul is either anticipating or knows that there are those in the congregation who are looking down upon Timothy, or who may, because of his perceived youthfulness. And this may, from Paul's standpoint, create a hurdle for Timothy. So he writes Timothy how he can overcome this opposition that he may face for his youth. Notice in the middle of verse 12, we have a but. Let no one despise you for your youth, but, he's setting up a contrast, Paul in his wisdom and in his knowledge and in his leadership over Timothy imparts upon him wisdom. How Timothy ought to properly respond to what he may face from the Ephesian church. He says, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Set them an example. One thing that Paul is most certainly doing, on top of just imparting wisdom to Timothy, is guarding Timothy. Paul, who is intimately involved in a father-son spiritual kind of relationship with Timothy, is aware of Timothy's weaknesses is aware of what he struggles with. If you recall, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul has to exhort Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God has given him. That God has not given him a spirit of fear 
or of timidity, but one of power. Right? He's having, he knows Timothy. He knows that he's, he has this struggle with being timid and being fearful. And knowing this about Timothy, and knowing that there may be those who despise Timothy or look down upon Timothy for his youth, he writes to exhort him and challenge him. I know that it might be your bent to respond to this sort of opposition. That it might be your response to cower in fear, to be timid. But Paul says that's not the ministry that you've been called to, Timothy. That is not how you are to respond to what you are facing from this Ephesian church. You don't respond with timidity and fear. And on the other side of the spectrum, which we don't get this specifically in the text, but it might be something that a young minister in general might struggle with, on the opposite side of what Timothy seems to struggle with, is responding with defensive dominance. That he may realize that there's a power struggle in the church. That a gospel minister who might be youthful may respond to the looking down upon him, the showing him little regard or dishonor for his position with defensive dominance. This isn't going to work either. And that's not the ministry that he's been called to either. And we could look at a number of different texts that we're called to, that ministers are called to shepherd the flock of God, not domineering. So we don't want to err on the passive side of things and cowering in fear and then you don't want to swing to the other side where you were trying to assert your authority and your dominance Paul says no this is what you're going to do Timothy and this is what you're going to do gospel ministers this is how you're going to respond this is how you are going to get the respect and the honor from your church members he says you're going to set an example He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. What Paul goes on to list for Timothy is the picture of a godly pastor. The picture of a godly pastor. Firstly, the godly pastor is one who sets an example for others to follow. If we want to know what the portrait is, The characteristics of a true gospel minister, what they're called to do. One of the things that Paul highlights here is that they are those who set an example for the flock. And he lists five different qualities or five different pursuits. He mentions speech. Why does he mention speech? Well, obviously one of the tasks of a pastor is preaching. And teaching, they use their mouths to form words, to speak in public and corporate worship, but also in house to house. They use their words, and and their words in the pulpit ought to be consistent with their words in their private life as well. Speech is, if you will, a barometer of the heart. It's a measure of the heart. 
Jesus gets at this in Matthew chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He says, in speaking and condemning the Pharisees, who he calls out as hypocrites, seeing an inconsistency between what they profess and what's true of them in their hearts, their actions, what he's seen. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Gospel ministers ought to be those who set an example in godly speech. Not just in the pulpit, not just when they're doing gospel ministry house to house, but as a consistent pattern of their life. Does what they preach in the pulpit and what they exhort to members of the church, is that consistent with the way that they talk? They're to set an example for others to follow in speech, also in conduct. There's a great relationship between one's confession and one's conduct. Another passage that relates to this very well, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Again, you don't need to turn there. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you confess, profess to call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He goes on to describe the wisdom of this person who hears the word of the Lord, who confesses with his mouth that this word is true, and that the Lord of that word is true Lord. And with their actions, their conduct, you see consistency with what they confess. What they confess with their mouths, with their speech. And you see consistency with their conduct. They practice what they preach. A true gospel minister sets an example for the flock, for the church. In both what they preach and what they practice. The third thing he mentions is love. Gospel ministers are to set an example, particularly set an example in love. Love is ultimately the epitome, the summary of Paul's charge in this letter. Looking back at verse 1, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Ultimately, it is out of love that Paul is urging and charging Timothy with the marching orders that he's giving them. It's love that Paul has for Timothy, for the church, and ultimately Christ himself, that he gives these charges to Timothy. And when he writes to Timothy and says, command and teach these things, it is love that Timothy is supposed to be motivated by to carry out the command to lead, exercise authority, and teach others. The motivation of a gospel minister is ought to be entirely out of love, love for the Lord and love for the Lord's church. And that ought to be seen in such a way that it leads the hearers, the members, the church to follow in that example as well. They follow 
the example of their pastors who exude from their life, their words, their conduct, the love of Christ. And the fourth thing he mentions is faith. They're to set an example for the believers in faith. Now this refers to both faithfulness to the content of our belief and also consistent faithful living that's shaped by that belief. He says, Timothy, you're to be an example to the believers of a life of faith, holding fast to the apostolic doctrine, holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to the faith, the content of what we believe. Through all the things that we endure in life, you are to set an example to the believers of what it looks like and what it means to believe God and his word above all things and in all things. And you're to set the believers an example of a life of faithfulness that lives in consistency with what that doctrine, what the content of what we believe says about who God is, about who man is and what man's problem is and what sin is and who Christ is, what the gospel is and and what that means for us. The gospel minister is one who sets an example of living a life of faith consistent with the gospel. The last thing he says is purity. Gospel minister, a godly pastor, is one who sets an example for others in purity. Now this is, in a very broad sense, this is referring to the quality of moral purity. They're set an example to the flock, to the church of God, in moral uprightness. This encompasses all aspects of a person's life. It's more than sexual purity, but it's most definitely not less than sexual purity. One of the greatest causes of a pastor's downfall, and by extension of that, a church's downfall, or the demoralizing of the church's faith, is the impurity, and oftentimes the sexual impurity of a pastor. Pastors. Pastors ought to be on guard and ought to be aware and ought to be setting an example for the church who is being attacked from all sides. Temptations to impurity and unholiness from within and from outside the world and the devil and our own flesh. All of these different places, all of these different spheres of temptation that tempt us away from the living God, tempt us to impurity and holiness. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you're to set an example for the flock in the way that you pursue a pure and holy life. Because the example that you set has bearing, has correlation on the spiritual life and the holiness and the faith and the love and the conduct and the speech of your hearers, of your church. So when answering the question, 
What picture does Paul paint for us of a truly godly pastor? There's one. There's one. A godly pastor sets an example. And going on in verses 13 and 14, he gives another. Verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. The second aspect to the godly pastor that we see here is that the godly pastor is one who devotes himself to the ministry of the word. The true biblical pastor that Timothy is ought to be and that all aspiring or current pastors ought to be is one who devotes himself to the ministry of the word. And this is carried out in three different ways that we see specifically in verse 13. One, he mentions the public reading of Scripture. Now, in English, we see the word public there, and we see the word of Scripture. In the Greek, we don't have the word public or the word of Scripture in there. So there's an editorial note that those who wrote the ESV and the NASB is the same way. It inserts, it supplements from the original, it supplements the public reading of Scripture. Now, why does it do that? This is really just kind of a geeky side note. But typically, whenever that word for reading is used, it's typically always in the context, both in the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament is typically always used in the context of corporate and public worship especially when the definite article is attached to it, which we do have that here, the public reading of Scripture. In the Greek, we have the exhortation and the teaching. It's referring to a very specific task. The true gospel minister is one who is committed and devoted to the ministry, the service of the word of God on behalf of Christ and his church. He reads the scripture. The scripture is read. I know Sovereign Grace has been accused in the past of having too much scripture in their worship services. We are commanded to do so. Our pastors are not doing their jobs if they are not regularly in corporate worship and from house to house Reading the word for God's people. We are, as the church, a creature of the word. So the word we read. Morning, evening, incorporated all throughout our worship service. And that's what Timothy is to do. He's to read publicly the word. But not only that. There's two other things he mentions in this ministry of the word that a gospel minister is supposed to be committed to and devoted to. There's the preaching of the word or the preaching of the scriptures and teaching. 
Now, what's kind of the distinction between the two? Because there is a lot of overlap, but there is a distinction between the idea that both words bring. Preaching of the scriptures, preaching of the word, brings with it exhortation and encouragement. In a very direct and specific way. That the goal of when someone is preaching, there is exhortation and encouragement happening. But it's always accompanied with teaching. So these are all interrelated tasks of the gospel minister. Teaching specifically, when you just look at the word itself, primarily involves the explanation and the exposition of the text itself. A gospel minister, a pastor, Timothy, any pastor, ought to be wrapped up, devoted to, the reading of the scriptures for the church. Ought to be devoted to the preaching, the encouragement, the exhortation of the word of God, and expounding the scriptures for the edification and the building up of the church. There's some application here for us, very specifically as it relates to the minister's task to preach the word. If it's the gospel minister's duty and the pastor's duty to read the word publicly for the church, if it's the gospel minister's duty in charge to preach and to expound the scriptures, to teach, to teach sound doctrine, to refute those who contradict it, then as hearers of the word, we ought to be good listeners. We ought to be attentive learners. Why is it that the gospel and the word of God is being read, being preached, and being taught? Why is it being expounded? Yes, for the glory of God, but for the edification of the church. Now, let me commend you. Our church, by God's grace, hungers and thirsts for the word. Hungers and thirsts to be taught. To hear expositional preaching. To be exhorted and encouraged. That's what a good church does in response to the pastor being faithful to his role. If the pastor's role is to be faithful to administering the word, the congregation who is receiving that word ought to be faithful to listen, to be diligent, to obey, to allow the word to wash their minds and wash their hearts, to be shaped and molded by it. And let me encourage you, Sovereign Grace, that that is something that I know that by and large we do well and we see it. We see the evidence and the fruit of it and the way that you encourage your pastors. Paul grounds his charge to Timothy to devote himself to preaching and teaching in verse 14. He grounds the authoritative reading, preaching, and teaching in verse 14 through reminding Timothy of the gift he has and the calling he's received. The reason why Timothy and all pastors ultimately pursue this task, this ministry of serving the word of God, is because they've been particularly called. 
and been charged to do so. He says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This ought to be another source of encouragement for Timothy, particularly in the face of the despising that he experiences, the particular encouragement that he receives from Paul to press on, to not let anyone look down upon him for his youth. Listen, Timothy, Paul says, you were gifted by God, that gifting to teach and preach and exhort, to evangelize, to lead the church, that was given to you by God and confirmed by elders. We laid hands on you. You have authority to do these things. And gospel ministers today, that's where their authority ultimately comes from. From God gifting them and that gifting being confirmed by the church, by the church's elders. So a gospel minister is, again, the picture that Paul paints is one who sets an example for the church, is one who is devoted, committed to the public ministry of the word. And then there's one more thing that we see in these last couple of verses. The godly pastor is one who is immersed in his duties for the sake of the church. There's no personal gain, personal glory that is the ultimate aim and goal and driving purpose for why a pastor pursues his ministry duties. The ultimate goal is the glory of God and the edification of God's people. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, in watching yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He says, practice these things. Discipline yourself in these things. Why? To what end? So that all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. The example that he sets and the progress in which he continues to develop in all of these different things that he's been exhorted by Paul to follow in. The reason why, ultimately, is yes, for his own personal sanctification and growth, but even more than that, for the growth and the sanctification of God's people. Again, I said at the very beginning, there is a direct relationship between the faithful pastor, the pastor who's pursuing progress in his ministry duties, his duty to set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. There's a direct correlation between his progress in pursuit of those things 
and the church's progress and pursuit in those things. He's saying practice these things. Persist in them. Why? So that the church may see your progress, your commitment to the duties that God has called you to, and that they what? They follow your example. That they pursue these things as well. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. Setting an example implies what? That someone is going to be looking at the example you set and following it. Practice these things so that all may see your progress. And then he says in verse 16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself, on your teaching. Persist in these things, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is an interesting verse when we initially read it. That there seems to be this relationship between Timothy and pastors persisting in their gospel duties to set an example for the flock and to serve the word to the church. There's a relationship between them persisting in this and the salvation of both the pastor and the pastor's hearers. By doing so, you will both save yourself and save your hearers. Paul's devotion and faithfulness. Paul's devotion and faithfulness to the word of Christ and to the gospel, modeling a life of holiness, has a direct impact on Timothy's own life of pursuing a life of faithfulness and perseverance to the word of God. There is also a correlation relationship between a gospel minister and his church in terms of the gospel minister being faithful to walking in holiness, purity of life and love and faith and speech and conduct, holding fast to the word of God, holding up the mystery of godliness, holding up the truth, and the congregation's perseverance and steadfastness in the faith. We can see that this is true when we look at the opposite. When we see a gospel minister who lacks faithfulness to the pure doctrine of the word. We can see what happens to a congregation when a pastor fails in their ministry duties. And they will be accountable for that. They will be accountable for that. A pastor who's faithful to preaching the word of God, to reading it, exhorting, expounding, and encouraging is the primary means that God uses. As people come into a church to hear the word, it's the primary means that God uses to convict hearts, to convert souls, to lead people to a profession of faith in Christ. And when gospel ministers fail in their duty to do that, and the word is not rightly being preached, you see a great impact on the hearers. So a pastor's personal salvation or preservation in the faith, pursuing these things has great impact and effect on the church.
These are all duties. These are all commands that Paul gives to Timothy. And they're not one and done commands. They're not one and done. When he says command and teach these things, it's not a one and done. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. You do this one time, right? They'll never despise you again. This is to be a present, active part of Timothy's life. Being devoted to the public ministry of the word. Not neglecting the gift that God has given that's been confirmed by the council of elders. Practicing and immersing. This is to be a present and active, continuous aspect of a pastor's life. And when a gospel minister pursues these things actively, progresses in these things daily, he'll be edified and built up, strengthened and sanctified, and so will the congregation. So what is the picture of a godly pastor that Paul paints for us here? It's one who sets an example of godliness. One that we are all to respond to by following. He's modeling for our sake. He's one who's devoted to the ministry of the word. So let us be attentive to that and hold them to the standard of that. And he is one who's immersed in these duties for the sake of the church, her edification and her salvation. Let's pray and thank God for his church and his word. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the grace and kindness that you've shown us in your son. God, that you have gifted us with men that you've called, that you've gifted. God, who we by your grace are seeing progress all of the time. Progress in their own personal holiness and piety and love for you. Progress in their service of the word, in, it, in reading and in, in preaching and teaching and facilitating and, and leading our corporate worship time, centering it on the word and the gospel. We thank you for these men. God, we pray that you would continue to sanctify them and build them up for your glory and your church's edification. God, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.